Now let's turn our attention to the Word of God, to the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 9. This is the exciting story of the conversion of St. Paul. He's known as Saul in these days, and we saw him last week on the Damascus Road, breathing out threatenings, having letters on his way to Damascus of Syria, a little ways from Jerusalem, to get those who had believed in Christ out of the synagogues of Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem, bound for prosecution and possibly even execution. Pretty serious matter. The Lord arrested him with a great light and a voice, spoke to him, gave him a vision, and he has now been struck blind, and he's in the city of Damascus. And our story picks up there in chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Saul. He was named after the great first king of Israel. You remember Saul in the Old Testament, book of 1 Samuel? Saul was the son of Kish, one of the most wealthy families, but he was of the small tribe of Benjamin. And Saul was anointed by Samuel to become the first king. He, in fact, was the people's choice. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was handsome. He had all the natural gifts that you would possibly want in a leader. He was a man chosen by the people. And in fact, when the time came that the Lord came upon Saul, the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, Saul was converted into a mighty preacher. And the word went out through the land. Here's something unbelievable, they said. Saul is numbered among the prophets. Saul is preaching. Can you imagine that? We know he's going to make a good king, but we had no idea he would be a preacher. And a descendant of that tribe of Benjamin is Saul in our story. He was raised born and raised in the town of Tarsus, 
which is in Cilicia, which is part of the Syrian province of Rome, far north of Jerusalem. He was raised in a strict Jewish home. He was a Pharisee, which was the strictest sect of the, Judish, the Judean people. He was apparently in his late teens or perhaps early 20s, moved to Jerusalem to study specifically under the most eminent rabbi of the Pharisees, Gamaliel, in Jerusalem. And Saul was in Jerusalem when he witnessed the events that we spoke of last week when the Christian gospel was beginning to move through the synagogues of Jerusalem and out to Judea and Samaria. He was there in the midst of all of that. And he was one of the people that had disputed with the men who were preaching the gospel. And one of them, one of the most eloquent of the group was Stephen, the man who was a deacon, was also an outstanding preacher. And he was defending and proclaiming the notion that Jesus of Nazareth, who had just recently been crucified and raised, was the Messiah of Israel, the King of the Jews, and the Lord of the universe. And Paul, or Saul at that time, still was very zealous for the law. And he, along with others, were consenting to the death of Stephen. And Stephen was, in fact, stoned, as we saw last week, with a brutal stoning. And he became the first martyr of the Christian faith, right there in Jerusalem, right there in the place where all of the events that we've been talking about, so many of them have occurred, Pentecost, the trial and crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ, all of these events right there in that town of Jerusalem. But Saul was so zealous that he did not want to confine the effort to stop the Christian gospel from going forth in Jerusalem. He got permission, in fact, he got papers and orders, uh, extradition papers to go to Damascus to find the believers there who were probably still in the synagogues, bind them, men and women, and bring them back to Jerusalem. And we know the story of his conversion. And now we come to the part in the story which is very interesting. Here we find Paul in Damascus, staying in a house of someone by the name of Judas. He is on Straight Street. And I understand from my reading that that's still one of the major avenues going through the city of Damascus. He's in a house there, blinded, he hasn't eaten a bite of food nor had anything to drink for three days. And he's kind of in a, uh, a situation where what's the next move? Now, if you know the active mind of Saul, you'll know that he was reeling over and over in his mind everything that he had happened on the road, his determined ride, his approach to the city of Damascus, his seeing of the bright light and the vision 
of the risen Lord and having Lord, the Lord talk to him and he spoke back to the Lord. It was a, a reality. And since his, his eyes had been scaled ever since that moment, he had nothing else to, to interrupt that vision. The last thing he had in his mind was that vision of Christ, the risen Lord, asking Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's there. Meanwhile, just a few city blocks over, there in Damascus is this man we see in our story today. A disciple, it says, a believer in Jesus Christ at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord speaks to Ananias in a vision. And when he sees that vision, he says, here am I, Lord. Remember Isaiah? When he sees a vision of the Lord, he says, here am I, send me. Do you remember little Samuel in Eli's service in the temple or in the holy place there, the sanctuary? He hears the voice and old Eli says on the third occasion, that's the Lord saying, speak Lord for thy servant heareth. And this is what happened with Ananias. When he received the vision, he opened himself up to the Lord's calling and the Lord said, rise and go to the street called straight to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. Oh, there we get a hint of what Paul was doing during that three day period, a fast. He's on a fast. He's praying, crying out to the Lord, asking, telling, pleading. Paul probably had prayed his entire life. He was an expert in prayer, but here he was on his face before the Lord trying to see what the Lord was trying to say to him. And Ananias was assured here that in this prayer, Saul was having a vision himself. And the vision is he was imagining a man named Ananias who was going to come and speak with him and lay hands on him and heal him from his blindness. And although it's not mentioned in the text, he's going to baptize him. Saul is being converted. <laughs> I know most of us believe in a notion of crisis conversion. That is, we call upon the name of the Lord and in an instant he hears our prayer and we come from death to life. We also understand that the Lord works with us over time and through processes. The moment of our new birth sometimes is not clear to us exactly. The theologians argue about whether Paul was converted on the road to Damascus when he saw the light, heard the voice, or whether his conversion actually took place when he prayed through and when the hands were laid upon him, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, because that was the occasion, of course, in which he was baptized. And I think we could probably discuss that all day long and never come to a conclusion. The Lord works through process. And here is the point of the sermon that our senior pastor wants us to get. <laughs> I'm not the senior pastor. It's another guy. It's Mark. He wants us to get this. And that is that God uses his people. 
And he mentions here that Ananias was a disciple, not an apostle, not a prophet, not an evangelist, not anybody famous, probably not a ruler even in the synagogue. We don't know what his status was, but we know one thing about him. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is what we all are. We are disciples and we are to be used and the Lord uses us. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need our ministry, but he uses it. And that's what I want you to see just for a moment. Some of the things that the Lord used this disciple, this faithful learner and follower of Christ there in the city of Damascus, how he used him in a ministry to this one man, Saul, who wasn't a very good prospect at the time. In fact, I would say he was more of a suspect than a prospect. But the Lord used Ananias. And the first thing Ananias did was he was obedient to the mission. You couldn't pay me enough money to go to the place where the man was that I knew was binding Christians and hauling them down to Jerusalem to have them tried and convicted and executed. That's just one mission if the Lord asked me to do, I'd probably say, wait a minute, wait a minute. But Ananias was obedient to the heavenly vision. And that's all that St. Paul would later say about himself when he's speaking he says, I was obedient to the heavenly vision. When the Lord spoke to him and when the Lord convinced him of what he should do, he did it in faithful, humble, sometimes nervous and, and cowardly uh, attitude, but obedience. And that's what Ananias did. That's what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to be like Isaiah and to be like Samuel and to be like Ananias and to be like Saul, where when the Lord calls, we say, here am I, send me. And it takes some, some spiritual maturity and some work to get to that place. And the Lord needs to work on us to get us to where we have done it all. One of the strangest expressions I heard as a little child was my dad would talk about his experience of being called to the ministry. And he always talked about, he, he named a date back in 1950 when he always said, I surrendered to the ministry. And I, I, and I always wonder, what does that mean? I surrendered to the ministry. Well, as I later learned, as I grew older and heard more of my dad's story and had an experience very similar myself, I see that he wasn't all in favor of it to start with. <laughs> when he started hearing the Lord call, it didn't fit his plans. My dad had a real good job coming out of the Navy in World War II, a real good job, and he was going to have to leave that job and go to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and and take his little one-year-old boy with him. And his wife, I know for a dead solid certain, my mother was not in favor of the ministry at all. And I'm not sure she was the day she died after having been a wonderful pastor's wife for about 60 years. <laughs> Surrender to the ministry. That means at some point along the way, you say when it comes to either a task or a lifetime of service or both, You'd be willing to say to the Lord, not my will, but thine be done. In the next hour, the Lord willing, I'm going to be teaching my class the, a portion of Isaiah 53. And one of the things that Isaiah 53, it talks about how the servant of the Lord, that's Christ, and it mainly speaks of his 
of his entire life, his humiliation, his exaltation, and all is, is arrayed in that particular um, uh, passage of Scripture. But, it, but in there it talks about the, the, the servant is successful. The servant accomplishes. He prospers. He does what he's called to do. And of course we know the mission was for Christ to go all the way to the cross. But he did it. The reason Jesus was successful and prospered and accomplished the will and finished the work is because he was willing to pray on his knees that night in Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. And that's what Ananias does. He submits himself to the will of God. He goes on what could have been a pretty dangerous mission. He goes to find Saul. Now, we don't know. The text doesn't say, but who do you think was with Saul in that house? You think Paul, he, Saul had just checked into an empty house? No, it had to be somebody he knew. It had to be somebody that was representative of the very priestly court that had given Saul the orders to go and get the Christians and bring them back and persecute them. Besides that, Saul traveled with the temple guard as an accompaniment. He didn't travel all by himself. He had a, he had a cohort of, 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 uh, of quasi-military with him. In fact, it might have been some of the same troops that arrested Jesus. There was the temple guard had accompanied him. They were there in that house. And can you imagine old Ananias walking up to that door and oh, as I've done before, hoping no one answers. But they did. And notice God had laid the groundwork. He had given Saul the vision that Ananias was on his way and he had given Ananias the vision that he was going to go see Saul. The Lord works both sides of the street. He'll work in your heart to bear witness. But I want you to know he's already working in the other person's heart to hear the gospel and to believe it. God uses us because it's good for us. He doesn't need us. The Lord had been pretty deliberate in his vision and in his voice on the Damascus road. He didn't need the trembling voice of a mere disciple. But God used Ananias because he wanted his work to go like that. That's the way it works. Now, a couple of things here about Ananias' ministry that's, that is um, pretty interesting. Um, when he gets there, he says um, uh, he, is, um, he departed from his house and entered in verse 17. He entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. You've heard me speak often about the bees of Christianity, believing, becoming, behaving. Well, there's another bee in the bees of Christianity, and that's belonging. That is the embrace that goes out first from the Father and then from the Son and then from the Holy Spirit. 
reaching out and drawing and enclosing in the arms of grace the sinner. That's the way the picture of our conversion is in the Scripture. It's the shepherd leaving the ninety and nine in the fold and going into the wilderness and finding the one and wrapping his arms and bringing him helpless and lost, straying and sinful, dirty, tired and hungry, weary and worn in to the fold. And that's what God used Ananias to do to Saul. Saul had to have someone to be the arms of the Savior, to reach out and put his hands on him and bring him in and embrace him and say, Brother Saul. And we can do that. Even though we're just disciples, we can bring and embrace and bring others into the fold and show them that love and that affection and that acceptance and that brotherhood and sisterhood that makes up the family of God. Two times in his ministry, Paul had men do that for him. One, here's Ananias. When Ananias goes into that hostile environment and opens his arms and brings Saul in for the embrace. By the way, Paul likes that. He speaks of that in his epistles. Remember the holy kiss the holy embrace when he brings him in. And the other time was later on in Jerusalem when the apostles didn't want to have anything to do with Saul. And this is after he's had a preaching ministry in Damascus for three years and has proven himself across a large area of being an authentic preacher of the gospel. The apostles in Jerusalem still aren't really sure they want to see this guy. And one of their fellowship group, the name Barnabas, whose very name means son of comfort, Barnabas takes Saul and brings him to the apostles and brings him into the fellowship and embraces him there. And then Ananias is a instrument of the Holy Spirit in that as he embraces Paul, he lays hands on him. And as we see so often in the scriptures, this is the great symbol. This is the great act of anointing and that anointing is with the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God comes upon Saul at this point. He receives the full power and benefit of everything that Peter had at Pentecost and everything that Cornelius had and everything that the Ethiopian had and all that we see in the scriptures when the Spirit of God comes upon someone and fills them with, the, with His Spirit, He enlivens and He becomes that earnest of the inheritance, that down payment, that first fruit guarantee that whatever happens down through the lifetime all the way to death and beyond that they are filled with the resurrection and the life. One day when this mortal shall put on immortality, when this corruption shall put on incorruption, it will be because there is the vitality of the Spirit of God upon the soul of the believer. 
And he baptized. He baptized Saul. Baptized him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I wonder what a strange thing it was to hear as Paul was baptized, to hear in his ear that formulation that the Lord himself had instructed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here was a man just three days ago had been an ardent monotheist who was absolutely incensed at the notion that God could have a son, that God would have come in the flesh. And yet, as he hears the baptismal formula, he hears the groundwork for the fullness of understanding of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he was, he was washed. And these spiritual things that are taking place are accompanied by physical as well. The, something like scales, flakes, came from his eyes and he can now see. Often we ask people to close their eyes when they pray. I can't hardly imagine praying with my eyes open. And I was taught that as a child. And the reason is, of course, we shut everything else out. And for three days, Saul had had everything else shut out. The Lord had sovereignly closed his eyes so he wouldn't have any distractions, so that he could see only the Lord, only the vision. And that's what had changed him, were those three sightless days brought about a lifetime of 2020 vision of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's just fill in details here just one moment. Let me read later on Paul. Uh, by the way, his name changed to Paul. I keep calling him Paul anyway. <laughs> you know what Paul means? What did Saul mean? Great one. What did Paul mean? Small one. Paul was humble. He was small in his eyes. He was one who was the least in the kingdom of God. He was the one who was the chiefest of sinners. But listen to his description as he speaks uh, to a, uh, a congregation which ended up becoming a mob. Listen to his words when he tells the story. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoke, spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, boy, this is, this is at least 20 years later Paul's telling this story. And he remembers that Brother Saul. He said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Saul's salvation, his conversion, was by divine appointment. So is yours. So is mine. We are saved because we are ordained to eternal life is what the scriptures teach us. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him of everyone of what you have seen and heard. 
And now why do you wait? Arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's why some think that Saul was converted then and not on the Damascus road because it's there he's, he's calling on the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall, be called, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, the scripture tells us. And even though he was divinely appointed from all eternity to be a saint, he still must and did call upon the Lord for salvation. Ananias was used to the Lord. Are you willing to be used to the Lord? You may never have to interact with someone as great as Paul went on to be. And yet you may. The Lord may use you to lead someone who will be the, maybe the next Billy Graham. 